Our reading is Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 13. Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 13. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing by her, by the uh, washing with water through the word. And to the presence of her to himself as a radiant church, without stain and wrinkle and any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husband ought to love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but their feed and care and their body as just as Christ does the church. For we are member of his body. And First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see their purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyle and a wearing of a golden jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that your inner self and unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is a great work in God's sight. Good morning, church. Sorry, I'm just having some technical difficulties here. Uh, let's start with a show of hands this morning. Uh, raise your hand if uh, at any point in the past, in your whole life, you've ever owned a Nokia cell phone. Anybody? Wow, that's a lot. Okay, now keep your hands up. So... If you've ever owned a Nokia cell phone at any point, keep your hand up. And I want you to keep it up if the the current phone that you currently are using right now is still a Nokia cell phone. Wow, what happened to all the hands? <laughs> what happened to Nokia anyway? You know, if you were born maybe any time in the last 20 years, maybe you've never even heard of Nokia. Um, but did you know that this phone here... The Nokia 1100, which was sold from 2003 all the way to 2009, is, get this, the world's best-selling cell phone of all time. Even to this day, it's outsold every other cell phone ever brought to market. Nokia sold over 250 million of these things worldwide. And in fact, in 2008, Nokia was the king of the cell phone industry. They had a 40% market share, just about anyway, which is incredible. Uh, and in 2008, it seemed like, you know, nothing could stop them. They were the king, like I mentioned, of the cell phone industry. Um, but then, <laughs> the smartphone happened. And of course, the smartphone, you know, it was a bit different. It required lots of innovation because until then, you know, cell phones were more of a hardware thing. It was, it was about who had the best hardware and, and whoever had the best hardware won the game and Nokia was really good at that but the smartphone changed things and software became equally if not more important and Nokia kind of lost focus there 
You know, they dabbled in smartphones, but they were more focused on their existing phones rather than innovating new ones. Um, and, and a case in point is that in 2007, when the iPhone arrived, it only held like 5% of, this, of the smartphone market at the time, whereas Nokia held 50% of that market just by default since they were the leaders. The iPhone, you know, they were at a small piece of the market, but Apple was focused on innovation, whereas Nokia wasn't. And by 2019, Nokia fell to a 1% share, all the way from 50% of the market. Nokia was focused on building a great phone when they should have been focused on being a leader in the cell phone industry. And, And there's a lesson in that for us. You know, when we lose sight of the goal or the purpose for what we're doing Uh, things can very quickly get off track. So as you know, uh, we are focusing on spiritual growth and maturity this year. And and today I wanted to look into the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship. How can a husband and wife help each other grow to become more like Jesus? Uh, And there's a big part of me that just wants to jump into the practical steps of growing spiritually in marriage and talk about, you know, how we can do good things to be better at that. And that might be good. But what I think we need to do is start somewhere else. We need to start with our purpose, which is why uh, I called the lesson marriage on purpose. You know, what is the purpose of marriage anyways? Why do we get married in the first place? And what does the Bible have to say about it? You see, that's where it starts. We need to sort that out before we can talk about the practical steps, because if we don't, like Nokia, we're going to lose sight of the purpose of our marriage and everything will quickly unravel. I want to break this lesson down into three parts, the head, the heart, and the hands of building a healthy marriage or building a marriage on purpose. The head comes first because we need to start with knowledge. We need to understand what the Bible says about the purposes of our marriage. Everything else needs to start from that. And then we can look at the heart of marriage. Where does our heart need to be if we want to live out God's purpose for our marriage? And then finally, we can get to the practical stuff. We can talk about the hands or the things that we can actually do in real life to live out a marriage built on God's purposes. And so what I want to say up front here before we get going is, is that, this ser- uh, that this sermon is not just for married people. We all know someone who's married, or maybe we hope to get married one day, or, or maybe not. But either way, we all have a part to play in upholding God's, uh, and upholding and celebrating God's design for marriage, because He came up with it. He designed it, and, and, Because it's an important relationship for spiritual growth in the church, it affects all of us. So let's start with the head as we get into this. We need to remember that marriage is a means to an end. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Marriage is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And I I know that might sound crazy in a culture where there's a lot of pressure on everyone, it seems, to get married. Single people are constantly made to feel like they need to get married. And and if you're single right now, I want you to hear that that is not a requirement for you to serve God. You're not a second-class citizen if you choose to stay single. In fact, there are some real advantages to that. And I think we need to say that because there's a lot of pressure in the world and, and sometimes even within the church for people to just, like, get married, you know? Like, somehow... Their life is not complete unless that happens. 
Marriage is a means to an end. Which means that we get married for the purpose of doing something that's greater than the marriage itself. You could say that marriage is a tool or marriage is a springboard for something that's even more important. And we don't have to wonder about what that is. Because God makes it clear. It's the same goal that we all have, married or not. The goal is to bear His image. And we see this right in, in the start of God's design. In Genesis 1, 26-28, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God created people in His image. And and we see here several things about marriage, I think, that allows for the husband and wife to bear His image in a special way. All of us, whether we're married or not, are supposed to fill that role. We're called to extend God's rule through His creation by ruling over the place that He has put us in. The place where He has put us, we rule over that in the way that He would rule over it. And we bear His image in doing that. The husband and the wife, they have a unique opportunity to do this by creating a family and a home together. They can form something like a miniature sub-creation. And that's a really beautiful thing. In doing so, they can image God. And they can be a part of uh, multiplying and being fruitful in that as they have children. And, and, And they use their ability to create life just like their God created their life. We image God in marriage in a special way. But let me stop and ask you this question. How often do you think about marriage um, like this, imaging God in your marriage as being at least part of the purpose of your marriage. I don't know how often we think about this, but it's important because if God's purpose for uh, if God's purpose for marriage is not our guide, the world is going to substitute something else. And I'm sure we're aware of that, right? Maybe the purpose of uh, our marriage, according to the world, is is personal happiness. You know, so that we can be happy. Or maybe the purpose of marriage is that we should get married just because, I mean, all of our friends are getting married. It seems like the thing to do. Or maybe you should get married because the world says, you know, that's what you need to do if you want to be a successful adult. But is that God's purpose? God gives us a much more more important purpose to aim for. In our marriages, we can show our spouse and the world around us a picture of who God is. That's an amazing thing to think about, but that might not be where our head is at today. Think about it for yourself. You know, what is your goal for your marriage right now if you're married? And maybe if you're not married, what is your thinking when it comes to what marriage is all about? Maybe it's time that we rethink our purpose for marriage today, and see it according to how God sees it. So knowing the purpose is important, but it's more than just information, right? We also need a heart that is ready to do whatever it takes uh, to live out the, the God's design for our marriage, to bear His image. 
We want to be able to have a heart that's ready to do whatever it takes to make that happen. But what does that heart look like? Well, in short, I think we're going to see this in the passages that we're going to look at. We need to have a heart that puts the other person first. This is the heartbeat of marriage. This is what it truly means to love like God loves. And we see this all through the scriptures. Uh, for instance, in 1 John 4, 9, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his, own, uh, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. His love is the kind of love that makes sacrifices for others. His love is the kind of love that desires to put others ahead of himself. And I think that this is the heartbeat of God's design for marriage. The heart that we need is a heart that's willing to put our spouse ahead of ourselves. We see this show up in Ephesians chapter 5. Right before uh, the Bible gives us some instructions about marriage, it says this. This is like the, the, the precursor to the marriage instructions. And in verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So these instructions here is where God gives uh, instructions to the husbands and the wives and it's born out of this context. It's born out of this context. It's all about loving each other in the way that we have been loved, in the way that Christ showed us. And I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of this part. You know, God's design for marriage is not um, to put ourselves first. It's to put our spouse ahead of ourselves. And this isn't a message we're going to necessarily hear from our culture around us. But this is God's design for marriage. It's not about what we can get from our spouse. It's not about what we can get from the marriage relationship. It's about how we can bring God's character into the marriage relationship. That's what's going to make our marriage truly successful. As it says in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let me ask you a question. If you're married, you know, does this describe your marriage right now? This, this, uh, this verse here, this idea in this scripture. If you're not married, is this what you think about when you think about marriage? Two people consistently laying down their lives for one another. And if not, what would it take to make that a reality? In the book of Job, switch gears here a bit. In the book of Job, you know, his friends, he's got a few friends there, right? They get a pretty bad rap. And if you've read the book, you know why. You know, they say a lot of, I don't know, wrong and unhelpful things. Uh, and they say that to him in a time when he really just needed support. But, but not everything that they said was junk. And I wanted to show one instance of that this, today. One of Job's friends, Elihu, says something about sin in Job 35 that I think is really important. In verses 5 to 8, he says, Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? And he's talking about God. If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself, and your righteousness only other people. Now, 
Elihu may have been wrong about Job's sin, but he wasn't wrong about sin in general. I love how he starts this out by saying, you know, look up at the heavens. Because it puts things into perspective. Have you ever thought about how small we are? You know, we serve a God who made the universe. We're, our planet is like the size of a, a head of a pin on the head of a pin on the head of a pin in an ocean of oceans. I mean, we're so small compared to him. And, and with that in mind, you know, if we reject God's ways, if we reject his design for marriage, is that a problem for God? I mean, no, right? <laughs> He doesn't need anything from us. And, and far from that being a depressing thought, I think it should get us to realize something about all of God's commands. He doesn't give them to us for His benefit. He doesn't need anything from us. His commands are for our benefit. He cares enough to give us a pathway that will bless us and bless our marriages. And when it comes to that design for marriage, it's no different, right? He gives us a blueprint, and if we follow it, it's going to be a great blessing for us. But if we reject it and we substitute our own ideas, if we buy the ideas of the world around us, it's not going to go well. Laying down your life for your spouse is not popular in our me-focused world today. The opposite is actually what's popular. You know, put yourself first. We hear that. You do you. Follow your own truth. Do what's best for you. And we could go on and on, right? We know, these, we know these things. We hear them all the time. But this is not the heart that God tells us to bring to our marriages. And we need to trust that He knows what's best because that's what's going to be best for us. He gives us this pattern for a reason. So what does it look like to put our spouse first in practical terms? Like we're talking about the hands now. How do we live that out? Well, God gives special instructions to the husband and wife that will help us with that. And I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what that looks like. So let's get started with the husband. Uh, we got to go to our reading now that, that we heard this morning from Richard. In, in Ephesians 5.25, the Bible says that husbands should love their wives. But that's not the whole command, right? It says that the husband should love the wife in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that changes everything. It changes everything for the husband because we need to stop and consider, well, how did Christ love the church? And thankfully, the next few verses give us some practical ideas to consider. First, if we back up uh, to verse 23, just before our reading, it says that the husband can follow Jesus' example in his leadership in his home and in his marriage. It says that the husband is the head of the wife, just like Christ is the head of the church. And now, obviously, we need to qualify that, right? What does it mean to lead anyway? Well, again, our example comes from Jesus, of course. And I realize that we could probably spend a whole lot of time um, just, just talking about this because there's a lot of baggage around this idea of leadership, right? We need to acknowledge that. There's a lot of bad examples in our world today, and some of those examples can even be in the church. There are too many leaders who lead for their own benefit, using their authority to get what they want, usually at the expense of others. But obviously, when it comes to imitating Jesus, when it comes to leading like he leads, that's not what we're talking about at all, right? 
But we need to make that clear. Leading, like Jesus, means serving and guiding others so that you can do what's best for them, even at the expense of yourself. If we're leading like Christ led the church, it means that we choose to lower ourselves for the benefit of the people that we're leading. Jesus' example of leadership was laying down his life for his bride, who is the church. And I think that's important for us to understand, especially for the husbands. And and the second thing that the husbands can learn from Jesus is that he sacrificed for his bride. And, And I always like to point out here that we're talking about more than just the proverbial, you know, taking a bullet for your wife. We often think about laying down our lives in some heroic fashion where we, we sacrifice and give it all up for her. And, and maybe that will happen someday. But honestly, that's not even the hardest part about this command in my experience. The harder part is, is being willing to die for your wife every day. Have you thought about that? And by that I mean putting her needs ahead of your own on the daily. On a Monday morning when you're tired and grumpy and she's grumpy and the kids are grumpy, are are you going to still put her first then? For many of us, that might be where our sacrifice is really needed the most. Men, this is what we are called to do. And another lesson from Christ is to sanctify your wife. We don't use that word much, but it means to make holy. To be made holy. Uh, We might say that we need to help our wives become holy. In other words, our scripture here is telling us that husbands need to contribute to the spiritual growth of the wife. It talks about washing her with the water of the word of God. Husbands, is this on your radar right now? Do you have a plan for helping your wife grow spiritually? It's not that she can't do it on her own. She certainly could. But it's that God has called you to step up and lead in this area. And in your marriage, and not only just in your marriage, but in your home. Because when you do that, you reflect who Jesus is. And another lesson from from Jesus is to care for our wives. Husbands, this is something that, that we need to do too, but are we taking it seriously? Do you feed her, like it says in verse 29 here? And and I know we're not just talking about physical food here, right? It's everything. Is the life of your wife better because you're in it? Are you contributing to her growth? Are you nourishing her? Are you cherishing her, as it says here? This could look like a lot of different things, but maybe one of the best places to start is simply just to ask her, what can you do to help her know that she is cherished by you? I know we're flying through this, but... The last one I wanted to point out is is that the husband pursues his wife. In verse 31, it says that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He's going to do everything he can to hold on to that relationship, just like Christ pursued the church, leaving the splendor of heaven to come and be with his bride. He was willing to pursue her so that she would know that she is loved. Men, husbands, Are you pursuing your wife? Do you date her? (laughs) Does she know that she is wanted? Does she know that she is loved? This is what Jesus shows us. I think that's probably enough homework for the guys for the week, maybe for the rest of their lives, actually. Um, This isn't easy. Uh, But we need to remember that there's a lot more at stake here than just our marriage, right? It goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. The marriage is a means to an end. 
Husbands, we're called to love our wives like Jesus, not just so that we can have a good and healthy marriage, although that's important too, but more importantly, so that we can bear his image to our wife and to the people around us who are looking at our marriage. And now some practical things for the wives. What does putting your husband look like in practical terms for the wife? Well, for that, we go to the passage that that we heard earlier from 1 Peter 3. We see here that the wives are called to be subject to their husbands and to set a good example for him of respectful and pure conduct. And again, just like with the husbands being called to lead, this part of God's design is not popular either in our world today. And, And we could spend a whole sermon just talking about this too, but one of the things that helps us is to simply remember the purpose that we started with. If we're trying to show our spouse and the world around us a picture of who God is, then these commands for the wife begin to make more sense. It also helps us if we look at the context of what the Apostle Peter is talking about here in this letter. Uh, For instance, so this is chapter 3. Let's back up to chapter 2, all the way to verse 9. And Peter says, uh, he's speaking to the whole church here, not just the wives. He says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, So Peter's message here, not just for the wives, but for everyone, is that we are collectively supposed to show this world who God is. We're supposed to declare uh, his praises and help people who are lost in darkness to see his light. Uh, But how do we do that? How do we actually get that done? Well, you know, we could think about it. Maybe we do we assert our will over the world around us? Do we argue and fight until we make everyone understand that Jesus is the only way? Well, Peter, thankfully, he tells us how. He tells us how to answer this call in verse 9. But what he says is probably not what you would expect. For instance, he starts out in verse 11 of chapter 2 by bringing up our conduct. You know, the way we live. He said that the early Christians, that they were supposed to go out and and show by their conduct and the way that they lived an example that would win the Gentiles for Christ. And again, in, in verse 13, he tells them that the way that they're going to win over the Roman authorities was to submit themselves to those authorities. Not what you would expect. He said that their influence would come through their submission. And then he goes on into verse um, in 18 and 19. He says to the Christians who are working at sl- as slaves that the best way for them to influence their masters was simply to submit to their masters and set an example in the way that they worked. And then Peter pulls out the ultimate example. Starting in verse 21, he points out how Christ himself, being in submission to his father, became a powerful influence that set the world on fire, that flipped the world upside down. The power of that influence we we know is still happening today. So looking at this in context helps us to see that making the choice to submit yourself or to show respect or to set an example of a good life is not a position of weakness, which is totally the opposite to the way that our culture thinks about these things today. Peter spent all of uh, chapter 2 pointing out how submission, how respect, how purity have great power to influence others. 
And then in chapter 3, he feeds that into what he's saying. He says, likewise. That first word there is important. In chapter 3, he applies this to the marriage, saying that the wife should choose to live this out in her marriage as a way of influencing her husband towards spiritual growth. Peter even says that her influence will be powerful enough to win an unbelieving husband to Christ, which directly imitates Jesus and what he accomplished by bringing so many people to God through his submission to the Father. This is powerful stuff. So the husband, the husband strives to put his wife first by self-sacrificing love. And the wife strives to put the husband first by uh, submission and respect to her husband. And there's obviously a lot of nuance here. Not every marriage is going to look exactly the same, but when the husband and wife both commit to this, to commit, uh, to commit to God's design, something amazing happens in the marriage relationship. They show a picture of who God is to the world around them and to each other. It's a living, breathing display of God's love. Isn't that amazing? What an amazing thing to be a part of. But like anything that's worth doing, you know, this relationship isn't always easy, right? Putting someone else first is difficult. It always will be. But we can help each other with this. And so I want to finish up with a couple of practical things that we can do to help our spouse uh, succeed in their role, whether they're the husband or the wife. So we'll, we'll end off with a couple of practical ideas here. Let's start with the husbands. Husbands... You can make it easier on your wife if you focus on the role that God has given you, not on the role that God has given her. I mean, that sounds simple, but I know from experience that that's a difficult thing to do. But this is where we can really help our wives. No one in the church, for instance, thinks that it's a bad idea to submit to Jesus because we know he loves us so completely and that he only leads us in a direction that's going to be good for us. In the same way, Husbands can make your wife's role a lot easier when we focus on loving her like Jesus to do those things that we talked about earlier and let her focus on the role that she has. And finally, wives, uh, maybe an idea for you. God has called your husband to love you like Jesus loved the church. And I can speak from experience when I say that the uh, the implications of this are overwhelming. When we realize that Jesus' definition of leadership is completely different from the world's, and it actually means that I'm supposed to give up my life for her, that I'm supposed to sacrifice for what is best for her, that I'm supposed to empty myself for her spiritual growth and benefit, it's easy to feel, (laughs) it's easy to feel inadequate for that role because the truth is that I am. And, uh, and I think any of us who have really thought this through are going to come to that same conclusion. But on top of that inner feeling of inadequacy, your husband also has a lot of external voices telling him the same thing. In our culture, a husband is generally depicted as like a Homer Simpson type character uh, who isn't really good for much of anything except maybe being the butt end of a joke or, or maybe if he's really good, he could earn a paycheck. But apart from that, you know, not much. It's either that or, or he's depicted as more or less a problem to society and a problem to the home. And I'm not trying to complain here, but the fact is that 
Wives need to know this. You know, at, at best, uh, our culture says that your husband is unnecessary. And more likely, he's actually just a problem. And, and if you hear those voices often enough, saying how incapable you are or, or how useless you are, at some point, you start to wonder if you should just give up on God's design and, and just give up on trying. And that's probably about the most demotivating thing you can think of. And so, what can the wife do to help her husband with her role? Well, just be a different voice. <laughs> be the voice of encouragement that he needs. Believe in him. You can communicate to him in your own way that you respect the role that God is calling him to take for you and your family and that you want to help him in that role. You can support him and your support will make a lot of difference in it and it can actually inspire him to think that he can maybe do it and that he could grow into that role that God has called him to take. I don't need to tell you that there's a lot of pressure around us right now to approach marriage differently. But we choose to respect God's design because we really believe that he knows what's best and following his purpose for marriage is what's best for us. In Matthew 7, Jesus spoke about the difference between a man who built his house on the rock and a man who built his house on the sand. Jesus said that whoever heard his words and put them into practice was like the man who built on the rock. The interesting thing in his parable is that either way, the storm comes. And I think this is an important thing for us to realize. Our marriages will not be perfect. Our lives will not be perfect. The storm will come. But, but will your household be standing when it does? It depends on the foundation. It depends on whether or not we approach marriage on purpose and build our marriage on the rock of God's word. I pray I pray that all of us will make the decision to trust God and His design for marriage today and always. There's a lot more to talk about with this topic, and even more work is required to live it out. And this is one reason why we highly encourage everyone in this congregation to be a part of a small group. We need a place to sit with other Christians and talk about what it looks like to live this out, to live out God's design for marriage in our specific context today. And I hope this week we'll find you talking about this with your brothers and sisters. And as always, if you need someone to talk to, you can come and talk to me. Thank you so much for your time today.